Welcome to What the Health Podcast, where we help you lead a happier and healthier life by offering a wide range of health and wellness news and insights. I'm John Salak, your host. If you like what you hear, be sure to visit our news site at wellwellusa.com and sign up for our weekly news blasts. Now, let's get started with the show. Sports can be a great thing for high school students, college athletes, and even weekend warriors. It promotes physical activity, coupled with learning teamwork, discipline, unique skill sets, and the ability to overcome challenges and meet goals. For a lucky few with exceptional skills and drive, it can even lead to a free college education. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? There can be drawbacks for high school and college athletes. Distorted self-image, academic pressures, and of course, the risk of injuries. And these can come in anything from sprains to bruises to joint problems and even the rare fractures. There are two other concerns or risks as well, and that's concussions and mental health problems. Now, concussions come mostly from contact sports like football, hockey, lacrosse, and soccer. And these head knocks are no small matter. They're drawing increased interest from parents, coaches, athletes, and even mental health professionals. The interest and concerns are justified. Concussions can present real dangers, although whether these concerns raise to the high level identified by some is uncertain. What's not debatable is that there are an estimated 1.6 to 3.8 million sports and recreation-related concussions each year in the U.S., and this is according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This covers about 10% of all contact sport athletes. It's estimated that these concussions lead to about 300,000 sports-related traumatic brain injuries annually. These numbers, of course, don't take into account the millions of concussions and related brain injuries that occur for reasons that have nothing to do with sports. But let's stay focused on sports for a minute. With Thanksgiving at hand and TVs across America tuned to college and pro football games, it's a perfect time to examine the scope impact, and potential dangers tied to these injuries. Thankfully, we've lined up a special guest to help us unravel all of this. He's going to provide a first-hand perspective as well as a clinical analysis of what we're facing. We'll also touch on the lesser-known mental health challenges for high school and college athletes. So keep listening. We have a particularly special guest uh, this week to discuss some of the issues that young athletes face and what they may carry with them going forward, and that's Julius Thomas. And if you're a pro football fan or maybe a Portland State alum, you'd know Julius well. He's had a tremendous career. Julius describes himself as an elite athlete, a speaker, a performance coach, an academic researcher, and a professor of neuroscience. He is also a CEO and consulting of his consulting and coaching company, Mastery Development, and co-founder of Nestry Health and Performance. In addition, he's also vice president of the Society for Sports Neuroscience on the NFL Players Association Behavioral Health Committee. And he's also the founder of Parents Playbook, which helps parents deal with some of the pressures they're facing. In addition to this, Julius was a Division I athlete at Portland State, both in basketball and football, and then went on to a pretty damn impressive NFL career, drafted by the Broncos, and also played for the Jaguars and the Dolphins. 
He was twice selected to the Pro Bowl, and he had quite an impressive career scoring touchdowns as a tight end. I'd like to welcome now Julius gets a chance to talk. Is that a fair assessment or at least description of your background? Yeah, man, you, you nailed most of the things that I'm doing now and the things that I've been doing in the past. I think that the thing that I would also add is that I'm a fifth year doctoral student in clinical health psychology. So that's probably everything else is okay. covered that you did great. I appreciate it. And so when you group all of that stuff together, the Division One athlete at Portland State, the impressive pro football career, all of these things you've done after retiring and the fact that you're working on your uh, doctorate, that makes you about 117 years old and you would have played with Bronco Nagurski at some point. Is man, that I, fair? Yeah. Man, That's a lot I'm, to I'm squeeze in. right now, but I'm trying. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, you've squeezed a lot in 35 years, so that's great. We're going to get into this in a second, but just curious, what inspired you to get a doctorate? I mean, is it obviously yeah, you know, it folds so, into your work. Well, actually, my work was part of my pursuit of getting a doctorate. When I was in my seventh year in the NFL, I just felt that there was um, a passion shifting inside of me, and I was wondering where it went, what was going on, and why I wasn't loving the game the way I used to. And I just really had this desire to help people. I'm seeing a lot from the area I grew up in, the things that teammates um, have gone through. Man, mm -hmm. I mean, I've had so many teammates, unfortunately, die before the age of 35. So you're constantly seeing things going on. And I just wanted to be on team help. I wanted to join the helping profession. And the way I wanted to do it was by better understanding the mind, the brain, and people's health and well-being. So I decided seventh year in the league, starting tight end, you know what? I'm going to go follow this new passion. And I made this crazy ambition that, hey, I'm going to go get a uh, doctor in psychology. And I still didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but I stepped into it and I really started to learn a lot about the mind. Then I had a great mentor who was a neuroscientist and she started teaching me and talking to me about the brain. So I bring them both together and, and kind of just try to help share information. It can be helpful for people to better understand what's going on upstairs. Did other professional football players that you saw in your career, did they realize the impact the game was having on them? And there's a lot of positive. I understand fame, wealth, community support. And I know a lot of NFL players do it. Are players aware of what the game may do to them physically or mentally at an NFL level, at a professional, an elite level? I think it's very important to talk about the game of football objectively. And let's just report on what the facts are. And so I think that from a lot of the work I've done with the football players health study at Harvard and different groups in the PA, one of the things we're starting to become more aware of is that players aren't exactly aware and haven't had maybe the amount of education that I think players should have about better understanding their health risks and the health consequences of playing in the game of football. I think that that's probably one of my biggest ambitions is to continue to, to talk about American style football, the good, the bad. So people have a good understanding and they're able to make informed decisions. Because I think that's really what's important as a person that's studying to be a clinician or a healthcare provider. You want people to be able to make informed decisions. And that takes a lot of education. So for us, there's been a lot of research done on American style football, probably the most researched sport there is for different reasons. And we have started to uncover a lot of information that I think is very helpful for anybody that's associated with the game of football to better understand. Now, of course, when we were just you, in answering that question in general, or at least I asked you initially about the highest level uh, athletes uh, in the NFL. 
But in looking at the impact, and I think it's from two angles, which is great because you understand both. There's the sort of the obvious physical impact that football can have on someone beyond tearing up a knee or breaking an ankle or something. And those are all terrible. But obviously the element of concussions in football, and that's something that's gotten a lot of coverage, both on a high school and a college, or even pre-high school level, the potential dangers or the number of concussions and what that may mean. One of the stats I pulled out was that each year there are about 4 million sports-related concussions in the U.S. Now, not all of these involve football, but I suspect probably the vast majority do. Not that you can't get a concussion playing soccer or get an elbow to the head in basketball or hockey or lacrosse or any of those things, but so much coverage has been put on football concussions, especially for young players. Is that an overblown concern? Not just the numbers, but the potential impact of what these concussions Uh, may lead to for young athletes. I think one of the trends that I'm really starting to see in the literature that it's so important to talk about and that I want to make sure that I'm starting to educate the people that listen to me or Mm -hmm. give me an opportunity to speak, that we're starting to kind of look at this thing in two different ways. And this is very interesting because Grant Irison, who is probably the most researched individual on concussion ever, over 600 Mm -hmm. publications on concussion. His uh, research group at the University of Harvard just wrote a systematic review that came out the spring of this year. And one of the big things they said when they looked at several different research articles and kind of said, what's the gist of all of these? Is that maybe it's time that we start talking about the effects of sports-related concussions and repetitive head trauma in two Mm -hmm. separate categories, youth athletes and pro athletes. Because sometimes what happens is people look at some of the consequences, the stories and the things that happen in pro athletes And they just extrapolate that and say that this is the risk for youth athletes. But the research is not supporting that. The research is supporting that amateur athletes tend to do similar to the general population when it comes down to the long-term consequences for their brain health, which I think is really encouraging. We're talking about 1% of the people are going to play past amateur status. But we have so many Mm -hmm. people that are very concerned rightly so, about what's the future health and well-being, especially from the mind and brain of their kids or youth athletes going to be like. And so I think it's good that we start to talk about how this narrative is changing from, hey, here's what's happening to pros. And we do have some things that we need to discuss and talk about, particularly along the risks for pros. But for youth athletes, a lot more research is showing that, hey, maybe we should slow down a little bit. Maybe it's been a little bit more sensationalized than the research is actually able to support. Why, from what you've read in the studies that you've examined, is it that they're getting fewer concussions or that the concussions for some reason aren't as bad? It's really hard to talk about the why. I think especially when we talk about the brain, getting down to the causation of what and what hasn't happened is really something that we haven't been able to really elucidate from a research perspective. So I just want to make sure I say that clearly. But I have some suspicions or I have some hypotheses mm-hmm. that I believe are okay. probably to contribute to that. And one of them, I think, is when we just think about biology, we sometimes understand that children are more at risk, but they're also more resilient. When's the time you want to have any kind of injury? Probably want it earlier in life. It's just something that happens when issues regenerate. Like there's some biological mm-hmm. things that I would like to investigate and think about in that area. But then I also know the difference between a 14 and 15 year old linebacker tied in safety and a 30-year-old. The forces are much greater at the professional level. The frequency in which you're playing, you're getting a lot more exposure 
at higher levels, at a lot greater forces. And I think that's probably going to be some of the things that we see start to lend towards kind of what happens over time. If you think about a course of an athlete's life, like the person that ends at 18, like most people do, they got maybe a third or half of the exposures of a person that plays into their thirties. And so I think that there's some contributing factors that we have to uh, look at, but from what the research has shown and, and some really great quality research studies is that we haven't been able to see a significant difference between the brain health of individuals that play just amateur and people in the general mm -hmm. population. And when we talk about just amateur, well, we're talking about people who play high school football or lacrosse, but football is the one that obviously gets the most uh, attention. Everybody knows the funnel narrows as you go up. So you might have been on your junior high team. You might have made it your high school team. Chances of you getting to a Division One program, let alone a Division Two or Three program, it gets narrower and narrower. What about those athletes that make it up to the out of high school and are still playing competitive football? Have you seen research as to how concussions may be affecting them, or because they're older and they've sustained more hits? Yeah, I think it's it's probably safe for us to say as your um, length of participation in any context sport increases, so do your risks. But we would understand and. and be able to imagine that with anything in life. The more often you mm -hmm. do something that has some risk to it, the greater your risk is going to be over time. And we talk a lot about American style football. And when we talk about sport related concussions, repetitive head trauma, there's other sports that are involved in that, right? You've got soccer, you have hockey, lacrosse, like other boxing, other contact mm -hmm. sports. Sure. But you know, it's very interesting about the literature. And this is something that has not been discussed enough and that I always want to make sure I bring to people's attention because we really have to start looking into it, is that female athletes appear to mm. get concussions on a two-to-one basis as male athletes. And so that's oh, something wow. that really jumps out at you. It's like, really, in the, the general population, males get about 75% of all concussions. But in sports, women are getting two-to-one on a concussion ratio in comparison to men. And that's very interesting. And I think that's something that we have to start looking oh. into because we very rarely assess the risk to female athletes when we talk about concussion. That's fascinating. Yes, I should have thought of that. Any idea why that's happening? Is it so the again, type of sports or a lack of awareness? So I think the research has started to look into what some of these can be. There's different theories to why females may have higher reported concussions than men. Some people say is it's maybe that the female athletes are reporting that they're having concussions more often. Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. how many people really get behind that, but I think mm -hmm. the most compelling one for me and the one that I think needs further investigation is to look at the difference in the musculature of the neck and traps. So oh. we're starting to wonder if maybe the, the difference in how much muscle that's in the neck and traps that controls the head and its movement can sort of be protective yeah. for males if not there in females. And I think that would probably be the most promising direction to look at. And I think it just oh. makes mechanical sense. When we think about a concussion just being a jolt, bump, blow to the head, it starts to create a cognitive symptoms because of the forces that were just at play. And I would suspect within that is that female athletes may be less likely to do weightlifting or build up those muscles as well. It, would that have an, likely have an impact or possibly have an impact? I mean, I think that there's definitely some opportunity for that to be one of the cases. I think that if we're looking at college, like, I mean, maybe I actually probably couldn't comment really well on the weight training for high school female mm -hmm. athletes, but I know at the college yeah. level, 
the female athletes and the male athletes, they train about the same, yeah. but I think there's just yeah, yeah, of course. that the amount of lean body mass, especially yeah. in the neck and trapezius area. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I remember going to one of my daughter's soccer games in high school and I was sitting on the sideline and she got a crack in the head and it, I, it reverberated through me. I think it would have, not only because I was her father, but it was amazing. And she kept playing, though they then held her out of the next game or two afterwards. Do you think, especially at the high school level, are coaches and athletic directors in schools aware of watching that? Like, oh, somebody may, in the NFL now or in baseball, there are concussion protocols. Do you think schools are aware what precautions to take? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the first thing I want to clarify is on an acute level, people, whether you're in high school, college, or pro, have very similar risks. But when you look at the long-term consequences on brain mm -hmm. health, it's less for amateur athletes and pro athletes. But mm -hmm. I do want to be clear that amateur athletes are absolutely at risk of negative effects that come with concussion. And one of the biggest ones that I make sure that I always mention when I talk about concussion, because this is what people need to be most aware of, in my opinion, is second impact syndrome. And second impact syndrome yeah. is basically when you've got the first concussion, you've got some damage, some swelling to the brain, and you're starting to experience some concussive side effects. But if you sustain another concussion, well, before the first concussion has had a chance to heal, there can be deadly consequences with that. So oftentimes mm. when you hear about a player that died due to concussion, um, it's generally because of a second impact syndrome. So that's something that everybody should be aware of, right? If I was talking to mm -hmm. high school, I would say, look, let's take concussion evaluation serious. If you think you had a concussion or if you think that an athlete had a concussion, we have to hold them out of play. And we have to tell them that even when you go home, don't do anything that might put you at risk for getting another blow to the head. You got to give yourself that two to four weeks to recover. I think that also at the amateur level, it's hard because the resources are not there. In the NFL, we've mm -hmm. got affiliated neurocognitive specialists that are watching the game, seeing hits that happen. At the high school level, we don't have that. So I think it's really important that we all understand that concussions are real things. There's serious health risks that can come if we're not evaluating them or if we're not taking them serious. And so I think that what I would encourage people to do is if your child feels like they may have had a concussion, it's best to just go get them checked. And then the, the sports medicine physician will be able to let you know, hey, I think that they should be out for a certain amount of time or, oh, they're, they're fine. And we have some mm -hmm. growing ability to test people and their cognitive status to give us a better idea if somebody has received a concussion or not. Over the time you were in the NFL, did you see an increased awareness and concern protection or better protocols for dealing with concussions? One thing I do have to give credit to the NFL and both the NFLPA is every five years or so we make big leaps and bounds with our ability to mm -hmm. understand the risks of concussions, evaluate concussions. We're working on rehabilitating concussions and, and getting better at that. But I think there was absolutely a big difference. When I first started playing football, there was a bravado, a kind of macho mm -hmm. mentality of I got my bell rung. I'm going to get up there and I'm going to keep playing because as a contact sports athlete, nothing takes you out of the competition. But I think we're starting to move past that kind of ideology and we're starting to understand and say, if you've got a concussion or if a teammate may have a concussion, get them looked at. And that's just going to be better for their long-term health and mm -hmm. their health in the moment. So I think that the, the perception of how to handle concussion is changing and it's getting to the point where everyone around the team understands when a person has a concussion, sees it as a real injury, 
and knows that the person needs the appropriate amount of time until they're ready to come back and play again. Do you know how many concussions you had when you were playing pro ball? I was never diagnosed with a concussion, but if I had to give you some anecdotal evidence, I would say it's probably two times. One time I got hit, for some reason, I felt like I was at the grocery store. And I couldn't remember what I was in that aisle for. Then it all came back, and I was like, oh, wait, you're in the arena. Like, you're actually playing right. football. So that was one that was really kind of disorienting. And then the other sure. one, I, I took a hit to the back of the head, and then I hit my forehead on the ground, and I felt fine mentally. My memory, understanding, was I oriented at the time, place, yeah. who I am. That was fine, but I had very blurry vision. And the blurry vision lasted for 10, 15 minutes. So that was oh, wow. when they I mean, checked out. I think it's also important to say this. Concussion is not just a part of contact sports. Concussion, unfortunately, is just a part of life. Look mm-hmm. at how many people receive concussions. You've got people from infants that get concussions, sure. teenagers, and older people. We often don't talk sure. about um, how older adults mm-hmm. have a, a lot of concussions because of falls. So sure. concussions are real injury. Human beings will do things whether they chose to do it or happened on accident. And so it's good that we start yeah. to educate people about concussions and they become more aware right. of the risk. What are the long-term ramifications for somebody who has multiple Because again, that's, I mean, it was comical 10 years ago, the punch drunk fighter, the something like that. It's important that we talk about really just the spectrum. What's the range of what can happen? Mm-hmm. I think on one end, you seem completely normal at the age of mm-hmm. 70. Let's look at people later in life and want to see what's the long-term effect. Mm-hmm. You get people that play contact sports and they're completely normal. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you get people that develop CTE, neurodegenerative diseases, um, start to experience some type of cognitive deficit. And those are the things that, you know, we really have identified and we've made people aware of. And we have to find out how we can protect people from getting to that end. We're not sure why one person that played middle linebacker for 12 years that you would expect to be high risk of developing mm-hmm. some type of neurodegenerative disease, they don't get it. There was actually a really cool article in the Wall Street Journal the other day. They did a neuropsychological test on a guy that has the second most hockey fights in NHL history. Mm-hmm. He was like the bruiser. He fought, I mean, so many times. They looked at his brain, did a neuropsych assessment, and he was completely normal in comparison to the average older adult male. And so you get hmm. these stories and I think this is what makes it confusing, number one, for parents, athletes, but even for researchers and, and scientists who are looking into mm-hmm. this because we haven't been able to pinpoint why one person gets an increased risk or develops neurodegenerative disease and why one person doesn't. And so I understand when mm-hmm. people are like, come on, where are the answers? But uh, unfortunately, we just don't have all of them. So I want to get into another topic, the whole mental health issue. but. Actually, the work that you see or you watch an NFL game, I mean, four or five times a game, you see a player brought into the tent. While this may raise concerns, it also raises awareness, which probably is a good thing. I would assume, would you, well, is it a good thing or does it create unwarranted fear? The the having the the tent is is a really good thing because it gives the medical professionals the opportunity to evaluate a player on the sideline. And this is starting to under, understand the psychology of an athlete. An athlete may be willing to push through some pain because they don't want to go into the locker room. Because once you go mm-hmm. into the locker room, it just feels like you're more steps removed from the game. Yeah. It's going to be that much harder for you to remain in the competition. But when you've got the blue tent right behind the bench, if you feel something or if you need to hit something evaluated, whether it be 
ankle, knee, hip, head. You're able to do that there. And you're able to have privacy when you do it. We mm -hmm. live in the social media world and everyone sure. has a camera. And those are very private moments. I think we all uh, would admit when you sure. see your doctor, you don't want the world to see. So right. it's good to be able to have those blue tents there, I think, for the players and for the game. And also, I was thinking for spectators saying, oh, this is an issue, but it can be dealt with. I mean, for parents who are watching or kids who are watching saying, hey, it's okay to have a concussion. Just check it out if you have a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important for people to see some of the best athletes in the world saying, hey, I want to get this looked at because that means yeah. it's going to make uh, a young athlete much more likely to want to do that on their own. But then I would also mm -hmm. say back to your earlier point that concussion has risk, but it's okay if you've had a concussion, right? Like, Plenty of people get concussions every day and generally you feel better in two to four weeks. And I think that's one of the things that was most encouraging for me about learning about concussion is mm -hmm. most people recover and they recover fine. And, and getting yeah. that into the dialogue when we talk about concussion is important. So that is the hot button when it comes to student athletes and high level athlete and professional concussion. There's a whole nother area that you're exploring and dealing with, and that's the mental health aspect of students, especially younger students, what are the issues and how prominent are they? What are the risks? What are these student athletes going through? And this reflects, yes, by I the way, your, your work on Player's Handbook, correct? Yeah, for the Parents' Playbook. And, and this is really well yeah, aligned playbook. with going to become a psychologist one day. But I think mm -hmm. that if I had to summarize some of the biggest mental health risks that we think, mm -hmm. uh, study, think about and study when we're looking at mental health in sports is number one, anxiety, number two, depression. Number three, suicidality, and number four, disordered eating. We do yeah. see challenges from a mental health perspective in all those areas. And the best thing about the mental health challenges and issues is that we're great at diagnosing, evaluating, and treating those. And so the pressures that just come with playing sports, mm -hmm. especially in America, which is a very sports-driven culture, the pressures on young athletes have been greater than they've ever been. The young athletes are having exposure to everything from their videos uh, of their games playing and making it on the internet to getting sponsorships and advertising. Mm -hmm. And the pressure that come with this can really start to create a lot of anxiety in athletes. You also have depression. Depression can come from being chronically stressed. Depression can come from being injured. And depression can also come when your career comes to an end. That's a particularly vulnerable time for athletes as well for mm -hmm. mood disorders like depression. Then we have suicidality, which is really unfortunate when we see high school, college, or even professional athletes take their life. And that is something that we can do a better job of evaluating. Everybody on the team recognizing when somebody's going through something and uh, making the right person aware, be it a sports psychologist or a trainer, so that we can start to give them the help they need. And then you start to see disordered eating in certain sports, gymnastics, sports that are very weight conscious. Then you start to see mm -hmm. people get eating habits that are healthy, and this can lead to eating disorders. So there's a lot of mental health things that we, we really do need to make sure that we're supporting athletes across all levels of competitiveness, but especially our youth athletes, because that high school time, it's called the formative years for a reason. Sure. People are very vulnerable for mental health issues at that point in time. And we actually see that the majority of people that have mental health challenges in adulthood, they began in high school. So getting people through this critical period of being at risk for their mental health is really important. And I think it's something that 
we can do a better job of. And if I'm being honest, I think that's an area that we must improve. There's been a fair amount of coverage of these issues for high-level Division One athletes and probably for lower-level Division One athletes, but you just hear more about the high-level Division One athlete. Even though we need to do more of it for high school students, is there an awareness there that you had a bad game, no wonder you look miserable, or you heard your parent or somebody else shout something from the stands or whatever it may be? Is there enough of an awareness that this is affecting high school athletes? Honestly, in, in my opinion... I'm very biased when it comes to this because I, <laughs> well, I think in general, yeah. I think in general, there's just not enough awareness. We, we don't get enough time to talk about health. If you think about the sports news and media, if you had to break it down into a pie, how much time on that pie chart do we actually spend talking about health, educating parents, coaches, players, fans? We don't get much time. So unless you study this day in and day out, like somebody like me does, like there's no way. Mm -hmm that you can have enough awareness. So that's what we have to continue to find ways to do and build and get an opportunity like to come on this podcast and have a conversation with you because now all the listeners get a chance to get some good information and then start mm -hmm. to realize like, oh, I can follow that Julius Thomas guy and he can start giving me more information. But we have mm -hmm. to find more avenues and get more opportunities where we can talk about health. And I think that's really going to lead to seeing impact and changing the outcomes. But it's hard. Yeah. Getting a spot to talk about health isn't always easy. The responsibility falls with parents to a certain degree to the athlete, but especially if you're 13, 14, 15, 16, or 17, you may just be an athlete, not even a great one. You may not have the confidence yeah. to say, you know, hey, this is a problem. But it also must fall to a certain degree with coaches. I played a little high school lacrosse. All I remember is a coach poking me in the chest all the damn time, and it wasn't very good. But, I mean, for a high school coach, it must be, for any athlete, it's, it's going to be this major figure in their lives. And our coach is aware of some of these guys, men and women, maybe pushing the wrong buttons, I assume, or could be pushing the wrong buttons. I don't want to blame them entirely, but they're going to have an impact. One of the things that, that I learned when I was playing football, and this is something that I've carried with me throughout life. When things are going bad, you point the finger in. When things are going good, you point the finger out. So the first people I'm going to point at are mental health professionals, right? Ultimately, it's on us. Those coaches mm -hmm. and those parents didn't go get five, six-year doctorate degrees. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to study the DSM. They haven't spent thousands of hours working with patients. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to say they should know all these things. I think it mm -hmm. first falls on mental health professionals to start advocating more and start going on the mm -hmm. preventative offensive front. Instead of just waiting by our phones for people to call us with major anxiety or depression or suicidality, or develop a years, many years in length eating disorder, and then now we have to find a way to fix them. I think as healthcare professionals, we need to be more vocal. We need to start creating programs, training opportunities. I think it would be beautiful one day if coaches were in the high school youth sport level, they had to get certified in understanding mm. mental health and being able to recognize that. I can't expect them to have the same knowledge and acumen as a, as a psychologist, but I do think that they should be educated. I think that we've got to develop these programs and certifications. So there's a parent, hey, my child's coach, whether their sport doesn't matter, has been trained and has some basic level of understanding mental health. And then even as parents, you have the ability to learn more about how you can support mm -hmm. your child's mental health, what mental health is, how to have conversations uh, with them about that. And, and that's essentially why I started the Parents Playbook to give parents that opportunity but it takes that extra step of trying to go get educated and learn more. 
And really what it comes down to is being there the best for the adolescent, which is my ultimate goal. And I think that's all of our goals for all being honest. So the parents play, but how are we activating that? What's the next step? Certainly it's certification, but between now and mandatory certification, there's probably a pretty wide gap. So how do parents, coaches, administrators get involved? What are the next steps they can take? Well, like I said, I pointed the first finger in at myself. And one of the things that I realized is it's not going to be a sustainable model for creating mental health mm -hmm. prevention. If I'm just a guy that sits by his phone and waits for somebody to call me and tell me that their child is not in a good place. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I wanted to start doing was to start producing content, to start mm -hmm. giving people an opportunity to learn more about mental health on the places where people are already looking, social media platforms. One of the other ways that it's one of my first efforts to start disseminating quality mm -hmm. information about mental health mm -hmm. and performance is through my newsletter, right? So I have a, a free newsletter that I release every Friday and it just talks about different things related to really the journey of being a youth athlete. And really mm -hmm. it's designed to help parents and youth athletes have conversations. I throw some tips in there. I talk about a topic, whether it's performance anxiety or even basic health information. I did a newsletter recently on the Olympic Youth Sports Committee, and they did a whole study on youth sports participation, how it's declining in the U.S., how that leads to other risk for health and illness due to sedentary behaviors, how kids respond at the next day at school if they've had gotten the opportunity to do sports the night before or that day. So to really just start educating, take a second, two or three minutes to read more about something that's going to be really important and impactful for a youth athlete, I think is going to go a long ways over time. If you're a star quarterback or you're even a starting football player, or it could be basketball player, anything else, Sure, there's a lot of pressure on you, but what about the guys who, or the women who are sitting on the bench, not getting a lot of playing time, but may also be feeling these pressures? I assume they're at risk and maybe less aware they're at risk of some of these anxiety problems just because of the environment. Especially when it comes to mental health, your yeah. status on the team may That's what actually I mean, yeah. be more protective in some ways mm -hmm. than people that have less status on a team. What you need to think about is overall move. For me, yeah. that's where I immediately put my focus on. What's somebody's overall mood? If you're the star athlete on a team, there may be times in a season where your mood dips because you got a lot yeah. of it. You didn't play that well in front of the scout you wanted to impress. But what if you're the person that's on the bench, right? Like I've spent a lot uh, of my time as an athlete on the bench, unfortunately. But mm -hmm. when you're on that bench, it's really hard to keep your mood up. Number one, you're not getting the opportunity to play. Number two, you have whatever your thoughts and feelings are about not being good enough to play or coaches and giving you the opportunity to mm -hmm. play. What's that make your family think? So you've got a lot of those. That's you know, some people, regardless of their athletic ability, may have parents that really want to see them be great athletes. And the amount of pressure that their parents may be putting on them sure. may play for a particular coach. And their coaching style creates strains on your mood and your ability to stay in a state of positivity. So we have to look at everything around the athlete and how it's contributing to affect their overall mood. And one thing I can tell you that I always like to say is, look, we need to have net positive mood. If any point in your life, whether you're an athlete or a non-athlete, if you have too many consecutive weeks where the net is negative for your mood, it's not going to be long before you develop a mental health issue. So mood is the first area that we should be looking at when we want to help people prevent mental health challenges and sustain positive performance and mental health.
you have had a very successful career, both as a Division One athlete and a professional athlete. And Ben, you had some challenges coming out of football, your mood changes and, and all of these other things. Was this a positive journey for you? And it's, you've had an amazing journey up until 35. Like I said, you look like it would have taken you 100 years to push all this together. Is this been a positive journey? I have truly loved what has transpired in my life overall. I've had challenges of, of injuries. I got injured. It took two years to rehabilitate from. Like I said, I've been on the bench at times. I've had low mood, low self-confidence, low self-belief. I've just got hit with the storms. The big challenges come with being an athlete. But I think that what built within me is a resilience and a drive. And it's really defined my character. The pressure to perform at the highest level possible when you get into the NFL and you start to play into really good teams, that starts to shape all your behaviors. The way I approach my doctoral program, the way I approach what I'm doing now professionally, it's all rooted in what I learned when I was an athlete. So yes, have I had to experience highs and lows that come along with the game of football and basketball and other sports? Absolutely. But would I do it again? Yes, in a heartbeat, because for me, it's not about going through life saying, but I don't want to ever experience any risks or I don't want to er ever experience any emotions or challenges that are uncomfortable. For me, it's about chasing the things that matter to you. Waking up every day with a drive and excitement for what you're doing. And that's the way I like to live my life. And, and no shame to people that don't, right? Some people mm -hmm. have different levels of risk aversion. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm biased. I play football. So obviously my risk aversion is not so high. But that, that was the way that I wanted to go about it. I love it. Some of my best friends to this day came through sports. Some of mm -hmm. what sports allowed me to do, like go to college, mm -hmm. um, like now, get a mm -hmm. graduate degree. I grew up with 13 other guys my age. I was the only one to graduate from college. And I know that was because sports got me to college. Mm -hmm. And then they didn't have that same opportunity. So sports is something that, that I'm, I still love. I'm still passionate about. Even now, as an older, retired guy, I still spend a lot of time watching various sports. So, and again, you're a different level because you're an elite athlete, played in the NFL, yeah. Division One athlete. And for younger people, I think it was 2014, President Obama said, hey, if I had sons, I don't know that I'd let them play football. Was that a reflection of the time? Younger athletes, whether it's football or something else, sports can and should be a positive experience, provided we put some of these things into play whether it's protective for concussions or mental health issues or anything else. I think that first to touch on uh, Obama's comment, I understand it. I tell people all the time, football is not for everybody, right? There's a certain mentality you have to have. There's a certain joy you have to have for colliding into people. <laughs> I think there's a level of competitiveness that fits every youth athlete. I want to see all young people getting up and participating in sports because it's the best way to get physical activity. Not enough young people right now are getting the recommended amount of physical activity a week. Mm -hmm. And that is going to end up creating tremendous health problems later in life. We talked a lot about concussion and the risks associated with that. But the risks associated with sedentary lifestyles are tremendous. Absolutely. And for Absolutely. me, that's as big of a concern as concussion. And so we really need to get all of our youth up, moving around. There's so many sports you can choose from. Basketball, soccer, pickleball. I mean, hockey, lacrosse. Find the sport that you and your family enjoy. Take your kids. Do it with them. Maybe they get into it. 
and they say, you know what, I'm going to allow this to be something that consumes a lot of my time. Or would you rather have a kid spending time sitting in front of a TV, getting more screen time that we know leads to mental health challenges and the other, other chronic illnesses and diseases later in life or outside playing, making friends, supporting their mental health. Like that's what I really want to see. And that's why I spend a lot of time really being an advocate for youth sports and encouraging parents to get involved with them as well. And certainly the impact that COVID had on shutting down our systems, and we've written about this a lot at WellWell USA and, and spoken about it on this podcast, through student programs, student athletes, isolation, increased sedentary behavior, created a whole, so it's a normal hurdle, and then it's been this COVID impact dropped on top of it. Julius, how do people get in touch with you, get your newsletter, learn about uh, Parents Playbook? One of the best ways that parents could start to follow me and start to learn from some of this content that I'm sharing around mental health, wellness, well-being is to follow me on social media. I have an Instagram, Julius underscore Thomas. Uh, I have a Facebook, Julius Thomas. I also have a TikTok, Julius.V.Thomas, where I talk a lot about mental performance and mental health and things that people can do to support that. I've also got a website, parents-playbook.com. On that website, you can read my blog, and also sign up for the newsletter, which I really encourage because every Friday, I call it Feel Good Friday, I'm going to send that newsletter right to your inbox. And then you're going to be able to have a three to five minute read. It's something that you can work on or have conversations with your youth athletes. Parents can become the first line of defense and preventative health for their children, but mental health professionals haven't done a great job of educating parents on how to do that. So this is really why I did it. I have two sons myself with another child on the way. I, I'm a sports dad. I feel the emotions during the games. I know what it's like. And I started to think how many parents haven't had the opportunity to get a master's in clinical psych and be working on a doctorate. How do they handle the emotions within themselves, within their youth athletes, so that they can support them in their journey, whether it's recreational or competitive. And I thought, you know what, this is going to be my way of giving back, my way of doing that. So I think it's a tremendous resource. I think it's an amazing place to start. And just following my content over time, I promise that whoever's doing that is going to definitely grow in their understanding of mental health and performance. That's great. And lead happier, healthier lives and enjoy sports for the, all the benefits it can give you. Every family can go play with their kids, right? Like sedentary behaviors is, is hard for adults too. So when you get the whole family out, and you guys play together. I don't care if it's frisbee, spike ball, tag. That is good, and that's healthy for everyone. So I'm big and encouraging families to get outside, play together. It's going to be good to create bonds and strength of the family unit. That's also going to help our mental and physical health at the same time. It sounds like a winning formula. Julius, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us, giving us a unique perspective and also clarifying maybe some of the preconceived notions that people have that may not be exactly right. But as you say, it's really worth it. It's step for parents, coaches, whomever to start exploring, learn a little bit more. They may not agree with everything. That's okay too, but learn and keep going forward. I love that you guys reached out and, and really took this opportunity to educate your audience by having me come on and talk about you know mental health and brain health. So I think that's a fantastic job that you guys are doing. Really excited about your work. Thanks, Julius. Before we move on, we want to again encourage listeners to take advantage of the hundreds of exclusive discounts WellWell offers on a range of health 
and wellness products and services. These cover everything from fitness and athletic equipment to dietary supplements, personal care products, organic foods and beverages, and more. Signing up is easy and free. Just visit us at wellwellusa.com, go to Milton's Discounts in the top menu bar, and the sign-up form will appear. Signing up will take seconds, but the benefits can last for years. Okay, so whether you support contact sports in school or not, chances are they aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And that's probably a good thing, because they do a lot of good for student-athletes. But it is also important that we know how to better handle the related challenges to minimize their impacts. This is especially true for the hidden challenges of sports that can come via concussions or mental health strains. Areas that are a little more difficult to spot than your standard injuries. The first part to dealing with a problem is identifying a problem. Coaches and administrators may care, but they may not be equipped to recognize a problem, so parents and, if possible, athletes need to take charge. Signs of mental strain can be tricky, but they certainly include mood swings, changes in diet and behavior, and a reluctance to engage. Signs of concussions are easier to spot. They include blurred or double vision, eye strain, light sensitivity, unusually sized pupils, eye movement, trouble focusing, confusion, loss of consciousness, extended headaches, extreme sleeplessness, or trouble waking up, vomiting, and weakness, numbness, or trouble walking or talking. If you or someone you know has any of these symptoms, it may be time to get help from a doctor, psychologist, or other professionals. It is also important to stop all physical activity until an assessment is completed. Knowledge is the ultimate power in protecting yourself or a loved one, so please empower yourself. Understand what the symptoms are with these challenges and what your next steps should be. That's it for this episode of What the Health. I'd like to thank Julius Thomas for his time, information, and insights. If you'd like to learn more about his work, please visit parents-playbook.com. That's parents-playbook.com. For now, thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll connect again soon for one of our upcoming episodes of What the Health. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Health. Looking for more feel-good news? Just visit our news site at wellwellusa.com and sign up for our weekly news blast. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support our podcast, please share with others, post it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Until next time, keep yourself on that pathway to a healthier, happier you.